This is the word of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You may be seated. Lord, as we read about the burial of our Savior, help us to understand why this is even in the Bible. And Lord, as we look to the, the witness of these women, the witness of Joseph, help us to follow their example. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the Apostles' Creed that we recited together and studied together last summer says in it, if you'll remember this, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And the Nicene Creed that we've been saying together this year says something very similar. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. If you go back further in time, earlier into the early church, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he writes, and we've recited this as well, for I delivered to you as of first importance, there's nothing more important than this, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. Of course, there's more, isn't there? All three of those statements have Christ's resurrection immediately following his death and burial. His resurrection and the promise of his return is the reason for our hope. But isn't it interesting how, how important Jesus' burial is to our understanding of Christianity? Christ died and he was buried. And this has always been the Christian message. It's a, it's a part of Christian evangelism going all the way back into the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is, is preaching in the synagogues of, synagogues of Pisidia. Look what he says to the people there. Acts 13, 27 through 29. He, he's recalling, recounting the, the, the events of the gospel. 
says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which is what had been said in the Old Testament, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And then look at this next verse, verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. When they carried out all that was written of him. Paul is saying there that when we examine the crucifixion, just like we did last week, we should expect to see everything that happens in the crucifixion had previously been written. It's all scripture fulfillment. And we saw that, didn't we? And once his death is proven to be in fulfillment of the scriptures, the Christian message has always been in accordance with the historical reality that Christ died and he was buried. Christians have always proclaimed that. And that really is what Matthew is saying here. That's the point of our text this morning. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And what our passage does this morning for us is to show us that there were witnesses. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. There were witnesses. Very simple message, isn't it? It's important because this week's text is a prequel to what happens next week with the resurrection. Jesus can't be raised from the dead if he's not dead. He has to have been killed. He has to have died and then been buried. And so we have to show, as Christians always have, that he truly has died and he truly was buried. Well, by the time Matthew has written his gospel, and we're thinking mid-first mid century, there was strong opposition to his account that Jesus is the Christ and that he was raised from the dead. All right, so some of the arguments being raised against his resurrection then and some of the arguments being raised now uh, are, are very similar to one another. The, the primary argument, the one that we'll see uh, was began in chapter 28, the primary argument coming from Jewish leadership was that Jesus' body had been stolen by the disciples. Later on, people had other ideas. They would say that Jesus never actually died. He only passed away, or passed out, rather. Uh, and, and after getting that, some, some rest in the cool of the tomb, he got back up, somehow pushed the giant stone out of the way, and disappeared into the wilderness, never to be seen or heard from again. You laugh, but that's taken seriously in, in, in scholarship. There, there are some who say, uh, and this one's kind of insulting, uh, that the women were tired, and they were understandably emotionally drained, and so they were confused about where Jesus was buried. And when they went to the tomb on Sunday morning, they had actually gone to the wrong tomb uh, and found it to be empty because, well, they had gone to a new tomb that no one was buried in, and, and it was empty. It was the wrong tomb. And because the disciples weren't there to see where Jesus was buried, uh, they were also led astray by the misguided testimony of the women. All of these claims are claims contrary to the Christian belief and testimony that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose 
from the dead. And so what Matthew has done in our passage, by including these witnesses, is to show us that those arguments don't hold water. Jesus truly did die, he truly was buried, and there were witnesses. And those witnesses will be the focus of, of, of our time this morning. And their appearances in the text, if you take notes, we're just going to follow uh, their appearances. So we've, we're, I'm going to divide the sermon up into three sections. You have the, the witness of the women. And then there's the witness of Joseph of Arimathea. And finally, the witnesses or the witness of the unbelievers. That would be Pilate and these uh, religious leaders, the soldiers. So let's look first to the witness of the women, that Jesus truly did die, that he truly was buried. These women are introduced for us in verse 55. Look at verse 55 with me. If you're new with us, we we just go straight through the text. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'll have the the text on the screen, but if you'd like to have it open in front of you, we're still there in Matthew 27, still on page 835. So Matthew 27, verse 55 There were also many women there, Matthew says, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, now Matthew's main point here is that these women saw him die, right? There's witnesses. They saw him die. They saw him taken down from the cross. And as we keep reading into the text in verse 61, they saw him carried to the tomb. They saw him laid in the tomb. They saw the stone rolled in front of the tomb. And then Mary and Mary sat sitting by the tomb or across from the tomb for who knows how long afterwards. They're witnesses. They were eyewitnesses to his death and his burial. And a few of them are named, aren't they? The, the naming of witnesses lends credibility to the account. When Matthew wrote this, they were probably still alive. Many of the people who were reading this or hearing Matthew's gospel knew of them or had a few degrees of separation from these women. So any speculation that Jesus either did not die or that his body was misplaced or stolen, that speculation could be dispelled by the testimony of these witnesses. But there's more that we need to see here that that I want you to see. You see, Matthew doesn't only mention the named women as witnesses, does he? Look look again at verse 55. Matthew says there were many women there watching these things. Many of them. Many women. Some of them are named, and those names are important for their witness, but all of them are women. Women. And that's important for another reason. These women that Matthew is referencing, they follow Jesus from Galilee. All right, So a lot of Jesus' ministry in that third year of his ministry happened in Galilee. As we've studied Matthew, most of the first 18 chapters are up there in Galilee. That's where he, he forms sort of a cohort of disciples who follow him down. And so if you remember, when he came into Jerusalem, all those people singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, those were all the followers from Galilee. So these women are amongst them. They follow Jesus from Galilee into Jerusalem, all the way to the cross, and all the way to the tomb. And by pointing this out, what Matthew's doing, he wants us to be absolutely sure that we know who stayed with Jesus to the end. 
the other side of that from silence is who did not stay with Jesus to the end. Matthew doesn't mention the 11 disciples, does he? John says the disciple Jesus loved was there, and I don't doubt that that's true. I'm sure that John was there. But that's just one guy. Matthew says there were many women. Women, this is what faithful discipleship looks like. Regardless of how weak, how cowardly the men might be at times, as a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-indwelt daughter of the Lord, you are to follow Jesus and be willing to be known by all as a follower of Jesus, even in the darkest of circumstances. Look to these women as your example. When the male disciples are not there, these women remain with Jesus. When the sons of thunder have gone into hiding, their mama is there, still with Jesus. When the establishment, and I'm just talking about the religious establishment, but also the, the government, is crucifying your leader, you have every reason to leave. And you have every reason to believe that they're coming for you next. But the faith and resolve of these women says with their great-great-great-grandmother Ruth, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. These women are Christ followers, aren't they? And they're not ashamed to be known as the women who followed Jesus and ministered to him. And women, neither should you be. Neither should you be afraid to be known as a follower of Christ. And this isn't to say that you are, okay? That this isn't to say that Delcera women have been fearful. There are women amongst us in our membership who in the history of this church have stood strongly for biblical truth in the face of leftward drift. There are women here who have been willing to serve the Lord faithfully when their husbands wanted nothing to do with Jesus. There are women here who, in the, in the absence of their husband's spiritual leadership, have taken on the eternally significant role of leading their children to faith. There are single women amongst us who have faithfully followed Christ in the face of an oppositional culture. By God's grace, the reason why some of us men have matured in Christ at all and stepped up to lead our families is because there is a strong, faithful wife encouraging us to remember our calling. I am, I don't say this much, and it's not Mother's Day, so you know it's genuine. I am thankful and I am edified for the women of our church. And I pray that the mothers and the sisters and the daughters of our church would continue to grow as women who are strong, bold, 
courageous followers of Christ. May it one one, one day be said of all of you, she followed Christ all the way to the bitter end. All the way to the bitter end, and she received her sweet reward. That's our prayer for our women. Now, I say all that, and I say all that sincerely, but there's something else in this passage that often comes up as a result of those truths, okay? Something that comes up in church circles, and think of this as an aside here, it's not really Matthew's point, but modern times call for modern sermons, and I'm sure some of you have heard this before. There is the case often made that because of the exemplary service of these women all the way to the end, following Jesus all the way, because of the attention that's given to them by the gospel writers, and because it was some of these same women who were blessed to first see the risen Lord before anyone else, and and the first to proclaim that he is risen to the rest of the disciples, well, well, then it must be the case that Matthew and the other Gospels are teaching us that women should be pastors in churches. That's the argument. Right? If a pastor is to be an exemplary leader in their faith and in their doctrine, and these women, and they are, were, were truly exemplary in their faith and doctrine, well then women today who reflect these same qualities should be pastors. You see the argument? And if you ex- ignore the, the, the non sequitur, and if you ignore First Timothy and Titus, and the instruction about who should be pastors, you could make that case. These women truly are exemplary. They truly are courageous followers of Jesus. They are dedicated to him. They loved him. They served him, arguably, more faithfully than the men. Happens a lot in churches, too, doesn't it? These women were models for all Christians to follow, both men and women. The problem, though, with that argument is the, the rest of the New Testament testimony. And I, and I, don't, I don't mean that flippantly. But the rest of the Bible is always the problem for errant teaching. You, you have to keep reading. We can't stop at our, our proof text. For, for something to be true theologically, the entire biblical record has to support the argument. And to this point, if these women were the prototypes of early pastors and elders in the church, then when we read the book of Acts, which is the nascent church, the early church, you would see these same women evangelizing and preaching and teaching and look to as leaders of the church. In other words, they, they would continue in following the example set by Mary and Mary and Mrs. Zebedee. That's not what happened. These faithful and courageous women do not become apostles. They continue to follow the Lord. They continue to serve the church, but they do not become apostles. Nor do they become elders in the church, teaching and preaching in the early church. Why doesn't that happen? And it has nothing to do with their faithlessness. It's all that they were faithful all the way. But the reason why it doesn't happen is because once the, spirit, once the Lord is raised from the dead and once the Spirit is poured out on those 120 waiting followers, and we see them at the beginning of Acts, men and women, it was then that Peter and James and John and the other apostles received much-needed boldness from the Spirit, a boldness they did not have previously. 
And with that new spirit-born boldness, the men were empowered to be the faithful followers of Christ that they failed to be on Good Friday. By the Spirit's power, the men became who Christ had called them to be. That does not in any way diminish the service of these women. It doesn't at all. In fact, it highlights their example, doesn't it? Their example to us, for all of us to follow. But neither should this text cause us to disregard clear teaching elsewhere in Scripture regarding the calling of faithful men. There's a lot more to say about that subject, and again, I would not have brought it up if my commentaries had not brought it up and reminded me of how often this comes up. Some of you who were in town when N.T. Wright was in town went to hear N.T. Wright at, at the Rock Church, and he used this text for those same purposes. So this is not an uncommon argument. It's one that you need to understand as Christians, especially Christians in a Baptist church with a statement of faith like ours. All right? There's a lot more to say about this, but this subject, that, but this, this text is not the place for that. All right? So that was a parenthetical thing for you. Uh, our second witness, though, this is, this is important. This is the point of the text. Our second witness is Joseph, this guy Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph testifies for us that Jesus died, same thing that women testify, that Jesus was buried. And Joseph knows that Jesus was buried because he buried him. Right? Joseph was the one who did the work of removing Jesus from the cross and wrapping him in the linen cloths and burying him in his own tomb. So he, if, if, you were, if this was a, a court case, Joseph would be one of your principal witnesses, wouldn't he? You would have a lot of questions for him, and he would have a lot of answers for you. So who is this guy? Who's Joseph? So far, we have not heard anything about Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew says he's a rich man. Luke says he was a member of the council. That is, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And it seems from all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Joseph has unique access to Pilate, the governor, that, not your, that your average Jew would not have had. So in other words, we can say this. Joseph is a man of means, and he's a man of influence. Means and influence. Most importantly, though, in verse 57 tells us he was a disciple of Jesus. It's the most important thing about you, too. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Now, there's something, something that doesn't come out in our ESV translation very clearly, and it's that word disciple. So in most of our translations, most of our Bibles, whether you have the North American Standard or the ESV, the NIV, most of our English translations have disciple here as a noun. And most often in the New Testament, that's, that's how this word appears. It's in its noun form. And that's how we usually speak about being a disciple. We make a disciple. We are a disciple. But in the original language, in this verse... Only, this only happens a couple times in Matthew. But in this verse, disciple is a verb. So let me show you what Young's literal translation, how they translate this. An uh, evening having come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was discipled 
to Jesus. You see the difference? That's the, uh, a, a more wooden translation. Joseph was discipled to Jesus. Becoming a disciple, according to this verse, is a passive act. It's something that happens to you. You are discipled to Jesus. That sounds funny to us, doesn't it? And that's the reason why our Bibles don't translate it that way. Because it just sounds funny. It doesn't, doesn't fit with the way that we talk. To become a disciple of Jesus, though, is the result of being discipled to Jesus. Think of it like a, a trailer being attached or hitched to a truck or a train car being a, attached to the engine. By the grace of God, Joseph had been attached to Jesus. He'd been discipled to Jesus, and now that's who he is. That's his purpose in life. Glorify God in Christ. So how, how is it that I can say that it is by the grace and power of God that he's been discipled to Jesus? I'm glad you asked. The last time we saw anything about a rich man, in Matthew's Gospel. Some of you were here for this. We were outside. It was summertime. Last time we saw a rich man in Matthew's Gospel was the rich young ruler. Remember that? Matthew 19. And, and, and he was asking Jesus what he must do to be saved. And Jesus' message to the disciples, well, it's impossible for this rich man to enter the kingdom. But, the rich are not without hope. Why? Because what did Jesus say next? Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. If, if Joseph, the rich man, has been discipled to Christ, then God himself must have done the work to get him there. That's what Matthew's saying. God himself must have discipled him to Christ, attached him to Christ. It is the grace and power of God that the rich man Joseph is now a disciple of Christ. And it is by the grace and power of God that any of us are disciples of Christ. Amen? Now think again about that rich man for a moment from chapter 19. That's the, the camel, the eye of the needle. You know that parable? There. Jesus had told him... That to follow Christ, he had to sell all he had and give all of the proceeds to the poor. And sometimes we misunderstand that instruction that was given to that man and say that all of us, in order to follow Christ, must therefore give all away and give it all to the poor. But we know that's not true. We know that's not prescriptive for everyone because here's Joseph. He's a disciple of Christ and he's still rich. And he hasn't given everything away, has he? He's still a rich man. He, he still has influence with the governor. And he's wealthy enough so as to be able to give Jesus his tomb. What we're seeing here is that you can be wealthy and simultaneously a follower of Christ. It's a miracle of God, but it can happen. And we're also to see how you can be both. Matthew is showing us how the rich men, or how the rich are called to use their wealth and influence. That's what we're seeing here. You can be a rich Christian 
but you have obligations. What are those obligations? Well, your wealth is not for your own aggrandizement. It's not meant to build an empire for yourself. Your wealth is not to be your source of hope, your source of comfort. The wealth of the rich Christian is to be used in service to Christ for the glory of Christ. That's what we see here. That's the the principle being pictured for us in Joseph's life. One Reformation pastor says this about Joseph's example. If riches and honors do not aid us in the worship of God, we utterly abuse them. Say that again. If riches and honors do not aid us in the worship of God, we utterly abuse what he has entrusted to us. It's not sinful to possess wealth. It's not sinful to have influence. It is sinful to misuse those blessings. We need to recognize that if God has given us these means on earth, they are meant to be used in service to him. And Joseph knew he had those means. And he knew that he had influence with Pilate. And so Joseph used his wealth and he used his influence to serve Christ. By seeing to it that Jesus be properly buried rather than left on the cross for vultures or thrown into a mass grave. Can you imagine if he had been thrown into a mass grave? How difficult would proving the resurrection have been? Those killed on crosses were often thrown into mass graves. Not this time. Joseph saw to the respectful burial of Christ in his own tomb. Look what Matthew tells us. Verse 59. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. In doing this, Joseph is teaching us. Let me show you what Joseph is teaching us. First of all, criminals would not normally have been allowed to be buried in family tombs. When Joseph goes to Pilate and vouches for Jesus, by burying Jesus in his tomb, he's saying he's not a criminal. He's innocent. Secondly, this was probably Joseph's family tomb, like I said. It was meant for Joseph and Joseph's family. This tomb would be like, I don't know if you've seen these before. It's cut into a rock, so it's not dug in a field like ours are. Uh, so think of, think of a, a, a cavern cut into a rock with with ledges cut into the cavern. And for efficiency's sake, you wouldn't want to cut multiple caverns, right? So for efficiency's sake, these tombs were usually meant for more than one person with multiple ledges. That's why we believe it was meant for Joseph and his family. When Joseph puts Jesus in his tomb, he's saying, he's my family, isn't he? He's my brother, which is our testimony as well. Christians. Most importantly, though, I don't want you to miss this. The language that Matthew uses shows this personal pronoun over and over again. This this wasn't just Joseph's family tomb. It was his tomb. Look what Matthew says about it. Laid it in his own new tomb. 
For Joseph to give Jesus his tomb is to say, Jesus died in my place. You see that? Jesus died in my place. And that's true, isn't it? That's what we've been seeing these last two weeks. If we studied the, the crucifixion, we've studied the cross, all the, the fulfillment of the scriptures, what has it been showing us? Christ's death is in our place. For our sins. So Joseph's gesture here is an illustrated proclamation of that gospel reality. Not to mention, and this is almost a side note at this point, but it's very important, Joseph's gesture also fulfills Isaiah 53.9. You probably saw that when Mike was reading it. 53.9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That's why Matthew says he was rich, to show us the fulfillment. And because he was rich. There's something else, though, about Joseph's example that I want us to see. He was rich. He used his wealth in service to Christ, yes. He had influence, and he used his influence in service to Christ, yes. And his act of charity towards Christ proclaims the truth of the gospel. But not all of us are rich. And not all of us can get a face-to-face with the governor, can we? Not all of us have that kind of influence. And if I could. (laughs) And Jesus only died once. So we can't give him our graves. Some of us, most of us don't even have. Most of us have not even purchased graves yet. But each one of us has something that Joseph had. Something that Joseph used. Joseph had a reputation. And he risked that. He he laid it down for the sake of Christ. Wealth is one thing, but wealth is a renewable resource. Right? Joseph could have always bought more land. He could have bought another tomb. But your reputation is not a renewable resource. When Joseph went to Pilate, he put his reputation with Pilate at risk. And when, when, when he publicly went to the cross... And remove Jesus from the cross. He put his reputation before the entire city at risk. And when he had Jesus placed in his own tomb, he put his reputation with the rest of the Sanhedrin, the rest of the council, at risk. Joseph set aside his own reputation for the glory of Christ. And that, more than anything, is the importance of his example for us. This is what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, reputation, for my sake, will find it. Joseph knew he had been given true life. In Christ. And that was worth more to him than his reputation. And I want you to notice something else. Joseph did all of this while Jesus was still on the cross. Think about that. Think of the implications of that. 
Jesus has not yet been raised victoriously. He has not ascended into heaven on a cloud yet. By all worldly standards, by all appearances, Jesus is a loser. He lost. He's no better than the criminals who are hung beside him. You have that in your mind? And despite that, despite the way things appear, despite the hopelessness of what seems to be, Joseph is still willing to be identified with Christ. John Calvin says this about Joseph's example. I'm going to put this on the screen. Because this struck me to the heart as I was studying this one. It says, but if through a holy desire to honor Christ, Joseph assumed such courage while Christ was still hanging on the cross, woe to our slothfulness. If now that he has risen from the dead, in equal zeal at least, to glorify him does not burn in our hearts. If Joseph showed this commitment to Christ while it appeared all was lost, how much more should our zeal be? When we know he's won. How much more should we be willing to lay down our, reputa our reputation for the glory of Christ, when he has been declared to be the Son of God by the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection. How much more faithful than even Joseph should we be when we know that our Lord was raised and that he ascended to heaven and he now sits at God's right hand while his enemies are made his footstool. Friends, we should have more faith than Joseph because we have more than Joseph. So should we not display more courage? We should. Our last witness is the witness of the unbelievers. So here we have Pilate, we have the chief priests and the Pharisees and the soldiers who were placed by the tomb. All of these men testify to us. Even from their graves, Jesus was dead and he was buried. Pilate is the first mentioned here, and he's first mentioned when Joseph comes to him asking for the body. And what is assumed here in Matthew is that Pilate would not have handed Jesus over to Joseph if he were still alive, if Jesus were still alive. That's assumed in Matthew, but it's explicit in other Gospels. Let me, look at, let me show you what Mark tells us. Mark 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, there it is, he's part of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The pilot's duty to keep the peace is to verify that Jesus has died before he's removed from the cross. And Pilate fulfills his duty. He asks the, the centurion, who's the executioner, 
if in fact Jesus has died. And if anybody would know what death looks like, it would be the executioner, wouldn't it? It would be the, the man who has crucified hundreds of people and knows when it's time to take them off the cross if necessary. The centurion knows what death looks like. So here's Pilate testifying for us, indeed, Jesus has died. And then Pilate entrusts the body to Joseph to bury him. And he entrusts to his soldiers the responsibility to guard the body. But what does Pilate also tell us? Pilate also tells us Jesus was buried. There's, there's, no, there's no way that we can argue against Jesus' burial and the place of his burial. There are witnesses. And then there are these religious men, the, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are Jesus' enemies. There's no doubt. We can, that's an easy, easy say for us. They're his enemies. And if, if these guys have not already put a bad taste in your mouth in the rest of the gospel, this, this passage kind of gets you there. They're, they're pretty annoying here. They're they, they already responsible for seeing to it that Jesus has been killed. And what are they saying here? That's not enough. His death isn't enough. It, it makes me think of Psalm chapter 2. You know, in Psalm 2 at the beginning, that they're conspiring against Jesus. And they're continuing to conspire against Jesus. They're not quite confident in their conspiracy. And the Lord in heaven does what? Laughs. That's what we're going to see next week. The laughter of the Lord in response to the, the conspiracy of these men. But let's look at what they say. So the next day, verse 62, the next day that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So this is a, an assembly before Pilate. And said, sir, we remember how that imposter said. They're calling Jesus an imposter. They're saying that he's a false prophet, even though many of his prophecies have come true. We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb, and this is kind of presumptuous, isn't it, telling the governor what to do. Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. The last fraud will be worse than the first. I just want you to see, there's no doubt these men know Jesus is dead. Right? They speak of him. In the past tense, look at verse 63, while he was still alive, which is to say he's not alive any longer. They're testifying for us today, Jesus died. And the fact that they want his tomb guarded says they also know he was buried. Well, in response to their request, Pilate seems he seems a little bit peeved to me, but maybe that's just my reading at it. He's already done more than he should have, and he knows it, to appease these guys. Now they're asking for more. And his response is actually similar to what it was uh, earlier in the day, or actually the day before on Good Friday. He kind of gives this see-to-it-yourself response again, doesn't he? Type of command. You, 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 can, you can have a group of soldiers... Do what you can, do what you will, do whatever you need to do to the tomb. And that's what they do. They take some soldiers to seal the tomb, to see to it that no one gets in. All right? They want to make sure that if anybody does get in, they would know about it. That 
to seal the tomb, that doesn't mean that they make it impossible to get in or impossible to, to, to move the stone. The seal is meant to show whether or not the tomb has been tampered with. All right, so some say that this was probably a rope that was set between the, the, the rock or the, the, the boulder and the, um, the, the, the rock itself, the tomb itself. Kind of set a rope set there embedded in some wax or clay of some sort. That way, if the stone is moved, you would know the seal's broken. All right? So it, it, think of it kind of like that little plastic wrapper on the top of your jelly jar. If you know if that's not there, you probably should get a different one. Anyway. <laughs> that's how this seal works. This guard of soldiers, then, that is sent to the tomb is our final group of witnesses, right? So we've, we've had Pilate. He knows Jesus is dead. He knows that Jesus has been buried. We have the religious leaders. They know he's dead and buried. And then these soldiers who are sent with the, the uh, religious leaders to guard the tomb, they know that he's dead and buried. The point of all this is to say it's not only Jesus' followers who saw him dead all the way and buried all the way. But it's his enemies as well. It's those who weren't following. It's those who didn't trust him. There are numerous, Matthew's showing us that there's numerous witnesses to Jesus' death. And there are numerous witnesses to his burial and the location of his burial. So the idea that his body was misplaced, well, it's kind of silly at this point, isn't it? When Jesus' enemies and his closest followers all agree on where his body was buried, there is not support for the lost body theory. And the argument that Jesus wasn't truly dead is also absurd, isn't it? The centurion affirmed his death. Pilate and the religious leaders affirmed his death. Add to that Joseph who took him off the cross and felt his cold body. And Mary and Mary and the other women who saw him laid in the tomb. They all proclaimed that he truly died. He didn't swoon. And that leads us with this last most popular theory, the one that was started by the religious leaders themselves. Could his body have been stolen by Jesus' disciples? Well, what we're seeing here in the text is first they would have to contend with these soldiers then they'd have to break the seal and reseal it so as to show that it had not been tampered with somehow. And while that's possible, it doesn't seem likely. Add to that what Matthew has included here for us. He's emphasized the fact that the women were the ones who stayed with Jesus. But the disciples had fled and were in hiding. There isn't even a hint that these men were feeling Heroic that day, is there? Or not Friday or Saturday or even Sunday. Instead, they had shown themselves to be fearful. They had shown themselves to be cowardly in Jesus' last hours. The idea that they somehow mustered up the fortitude in the, in the dark of the night to take on these Roman soldiers and then run off and hide Jesus' body so that it would never be found, that just doesn't match the spineless jellyfish they've shown themselves to be, does it? Well, the fact is, 
this is what Matthew has for us. The fact is this. Jesus died on that precious Friday. And he was buried in Joseph's tomb before nightfall. And his body lay there all day and all night on Saturday as well. But that is not the end of the story. Amen? Until next week. All right?